If you have your Bible, would you like to turn to Luke 5? And uh, we'll look at the last part of the chapter, but we'll read from verse 33. So Luke 5, verse 33 to the end is where we are. Let's pray. Father, it's just a delight to tell you how much we love you. To spend moments lingering in your presence, to do so together in the company of other people who also see you the way we do. It's a great joy, Lord, in our busy lives that are under pressure from all angles to draw aside in this way and to choose to honour you and glorify you. And we are deeply indebted to you, Father, that you have given us your word, you preserved it and enable us to have it before us. We're very grateful for that, Lord. We wish we knew your word more. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us into the kind of truth that sets us free. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So, verse 33 then. They said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. So we're looking this morning at the parable of the wineskins, and it arises out of a question, a kind of question that Jesus was asked why his, his ministry so different from that of John the Baptist. Say those who are questioning him, the Pharisees and so forth, they say John's disciples fast and pray, the disciples of the Pharisees fast and pray, but yours don't. How come you're so different from everybody else? Why don't you fit in to the way things are done? And Jesus answers them in a very straightforward way, demolishes their argument in one sentence, basically, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? What does that conjure up to you? What's the image that that answer gives to you? The bridegroom? No trick here? Come on, I just want to see if you're with me on my, on my wavelength here. What's the picture? Yeah, a bridegroom speaks of a bride and a wedding. And weddings are always happy occasions. Not just because you are indebted to these, this young couple who are just you know, madly in love with each other, but somehow it's a communal thing, it speaks of a greater reality, and so forth. So Jesus deliberately uses this imagery of bridegrooms. So the kingdom of God, in uh, Tony Campolo's words, is a, is a party. We must never forget that, must we? There's an element of joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In your presence is fullness of joy. We're not talking about happiness, you know, that's which can be quite superficial or affected very much by what's going on around. But we're talking about a deep joy that everyone experiences. So he said, well, you fast because you're in sorrow. 
That's why you fast, or because you really want to come before the Lord. <clears throat> so it's entirely inappropriate to fast. If the bridegroom's here, can you imagine being invited to a wedding with this great feast to eat, and everyone stands there at the back looking very sorrowful and won't eat because they're fasting? It's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? So Jesus demolishes her argument in one fell swoop. He says that the time's coming when the bridegroom will be taken, and probably he's talking about his crucifixion. That's going to be a very sad time. But then he comes back again, and there are two meals, aren't there? There's the road to Emmaus, and the meal there, and then the one they have in Jerusalem. So the resurrection of Jesus is accompanied by meals, and the joy goes on. You read the book of Acts, and joy explodes all over the place. You can't keep these guys down. And so it is meant to be here. But then he goes on to pull out some thoughts. Because uh, the coming of Jesus has really knocked them back to six. He's doing a new thing, and they need to be able to absorb it. There's two things, really, about it. He's not predicting or announcing the Messiah like John the Baptist was. He is the Messiah. That's the difference of his ministry, isn't it? John the Baptist pointed at Jesus. So their ministries could not be more different, could they? So some would utterly refuse him completely and say the old is better. We are glad, we are happy with what we've got, thank you. Don't mess us about with some new stuff. Which is what some would say. Others would say, well, I like some of it. Um, so, I, you know, let's make your teaching fit in with what I already know and try and merge the two together. That won't work altogether right. And some will say, well, I like this bit about your ministry and that bit about your ministry, but I don't like the rest. I'll add those two bits and join them to what I already believe. But Jesus says that won't work either. His claims are exclusive. And, uh, and although this applies to a certain cut-off point, this is talking about Jesus at an unchangeable point, it's unrepeatable, he's saying basically in him, all things are made new, so we have to sort of absorb that. Yet there are principles that you can draw from this. And he uses the imagery of new wine and new wines. Do we have any wine makers here? I don't make wine. I drink a bit of wine, but I don't make wine. No, no wine makers. Okay, so I'm, a, I'm on safe ground then. Because you won't know if I'm talking the right thing or not, will you? Anyway, because anyway. there's always a danger when you talk about things, there's always an expert. There always is an expert in the audience who'll come up and say, yes, yes, child, what you said was okay, but you know, let me put you straight on these things. Okay, so here, this parable teaches that you don't put new wine into old wineskins. And you know why that is, of course, because the process of new wine becoming mature goes through fermentation. And in that process is huge pressure. Today they use barrels apparently and wine growers and wine makers say the barrels go under huge pressure as the wine just ferments. And uh, so there's a need for flexibility and pliability because if you put a new wine in an old wineskin, an old wineskin of course is a, usually a goat skin, they take the flesh and the bones out of the animal and you're left with the skin and they use it as a container. Because the trouble is, over a period of time, it becomes more and more brittle. So you put new wine into an old wine skin, and what will happen is the fermentation will just burst the skin, and you lose the wine and the skin. The worst of all worlds. So what Jesus is saying here is, if you want to try and put what I'm bringing 
into your structures at the moment without any thought, then the whole thing will get lost. It won't fit. There's a progression here that you can't put the new wine into old wineskins. And the new things that the Spirit does, generation by generation, we have to be careful about trying to stick those into the structures we already have. This is a danger of losing both. And in the 70s and 80s, when the Spirit was doing all sorts of new things in our country under the charismatic renewal and all that sort of stuff, many churches chose this verse to um, justify starting new streams. That's not what it's all about. They said, well, it won't fit into the established church. You've got to do a new thing. And they missed the point entirely. New wine, however, must be put into wineskins. Because you can't make wine without putting it in a container of some kind, can you? So you've got to put it in a wineskin. Don't put it in an old wineskin. But you've got to put it in a wineskin. Because wine cannot exist without being contained. So those are the people who talk about structures, you know, or anti-structures, well, that's a nonsense, because structures contain things. They all are an expression of containment, aren't they? You've got to have some sort of structure here. So Jesus is saying, there's a structure around, but it's not going to look quite like you're used to. You're going to have to change it. So what the Spirit is doing in any particular time has to be brought into the disciplined context of a body of people so that it can mature and that it can be protected from potential excesses. The worst thing that can happen is when people enter into something new of the Spirit and say, I'm not part of the church, I just want to be part of what God's doing, and they set themselves free from the disciplined body of Christ and go off and become wacky and do really strange things and lead other people into all sorts of mischief. It needs to be worked through a group of people who are committed to God and working things through together. So what he says, you must put new wine into new wineskins. That's what my NIV says, and I wonder if your NIV says the same. New wine, new wineskins. And what you miss there, of course, is that there's not an English word. There's only one English word for two Greek words. There are two Greek words, so I'm told, for new, we only have one in English. So the translators have used the same one, but they miss a little subtlety here. Because it works like this. You put new wine into renewed wineskins, and that conveys the sense. You see, if a winemaker were to have brand new wineskins every single time he made wine, then he would cut seriously into his profit. It would be impractical and uneconomic. So he reuses old wineskins. And so the two words here are, you put new wine, new wine as in never been around before, into renewed wineskins, renewed as in brought back to their original condition. Subtle difference. Do you see the point? Sometimes those two words are used synonymously, but not here, I don't believe. So what he has to do with his goat skin, which has gone all brittle and hard because it's been absorbing wine, is to make it pliable again. Do you know how he does that? He dunks it in a barrel of water for a couple of hours or a couple of days. And the water leaches out the wine and he pulls it out and it's all flexible and soft. 
and he drains the stuff and the leather is now able to contain the new wine. Isn't that a graphic picture? Jesus isn't saying, be gone with all your structures. What he's saying is, I come and do a new thing. If you don't think about the structures you've got, the whole thing's just going to go up in smoke, blow apart. You lose the lot. But if you take the structures you've got and dunk them in a barrel of water and allow the, the rigidity of them to be removed from them so they become pliable again, then those structures will be able to contain what I'm doing. It's a great picture of the Spirit, isn't it? So what we have to do is we seek to do the right thing with God. As God introduces new things, it's not a case of, oh, the old is all worse, just get rid of everything, let's do new things. That's really impractical. As you and I both know, if you watch the history of the church in the 21st century, in the 20th century, um, as people did that, all they've got is a load more denominations now, haven't we? They thought they were doing something new, but it's just a load of old denominations now, aren't they? They may look, you know, have different names, but basically... The structures are very similar, aren't they? There may be elements about them, but I dare say if you went back in church history, they mirror what's been done there before. You just end up with that structure. What was needed was someone to say, let's look at the structures we've got and see what we need to surrender to the Spirit because it no longer serves the purpose originally. But don't just chuck the thing away. So new wine needs to mature. Old wine is more palatable and less intoxicating than new wine. You connoisseurs would know that, wouldn't you? The old wine is better. So Jesus is saying, you can't reject the new thing because it's new, because everything that's old was once new, wasn't it? So you can't reject new things. So something of an older generation has to watch out about criticism of younger generations, because they love the new things, don't they? And say, oh, we don't have any of that, just the old things. But nor must the new say the old is no good. We only want the new. So we have volunteers, you know, at Ashburn and Place and all over the country, but they think, they think a really, really old song, a really, really, really old Christian song, is something that was written before 2000. That's a really, really, really old song. You don't see many of those. 2005 is old. 2010 is old, but 2000 is, you know, geriatric. Kind of dismissing of all the old. And the new is better. On the other hand, there are some people who won't sing anything that was printed after 1777. You know, because it's, that was the good stuff. And anything new after that is no good. Well, that's a nonsense too, because there's plenty of good stuff that's been written, for example, about that since then. Doesn't it? Some of it's rubbish in both directions, isn't it? Some of the new stuff is absolute nonsense. It's complete rubbish. I don't know why we sing it. But some of the old stuff is rubbish too. So it's not a question of the good or the old being better. So the context of Jesus' words is that his and John the Baptist's ministries are being compared to one another. And he's saying, what I'm doing is something new. Bringing a completely new way of thinking. So here's some thoughts for me. From me, just he was approaching a particular issue, and I'll give you just three examples from what Jesus was doing. But they do apply today and give us an example of the way we have to rethink things. Turn to John 4 if you've got your Bible. If you haven't, you can't, but you'll know the story. It's about a woman who he meets at the well, a 
he sits on the well and he asks her for a drink. Remember her? The Samaritan woman? Well, in verse 20, she says to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. So here's the first area then in worship. When Jesus arrived on the scene, people were used to going to the temple to worship. That was the place of worship. It was to do with location and structure and form. And so when they're talking here, she says, well, we worship here, but you worship there. And Jesus says, but a time is coming when you don't worship, but anywhere. The whole thing is different. You see, if we all had to go to Jerusalem to worship now, wouldn't it be impractical? Apart from, you know, the easy jets and things, they'd do, they'd do a roaring trade on Sundays, wouldn't they? And everyone from the whole world descends on Jerusalem. It would be totally impractical, wouldn't it? Jesus is saying, That's, that structure is too limiting by half. Because what I'm doing now is exploding all over the place. I don't want you to build temples all over the world. I do not want you to do that. Because it's not about the place, but it's about the person. So our worship can never be merely about the external. If we focus on the building and the priesthood and the structure and the form, we become focusing on the external, whether I like it, but not on the internal, about where I am in all this. We are satisfied if an outward form we sang all the songs I like at the time. And forget to engage myself in all of this. The tendency is to worship the form rather than to worship God. But Jesus says it's all about the motivation of the worshipper. Isn't it? Why are you worshipping? It's all about that. And you take that with you wherever you go. It's about the desire of the worshipper. What do you want to do when you come to worship God? It's to worship God. Not to sing one song or another. I mean, last Sunday in, in the celebration in, in Ashburnham Place, I didn't know a single song. Not a single one. They were singing all these new songs. So I just sang in tongues all the time. It was great. And really enjoyed it. And chilled along at sometimes. But I think a lot of other people were too. It was really it was a wonderful time of worship. But you don't have to, if it's all about the words, that I was stuck, but I couldn't sing the words. But it's not just about the words, is it, in the, that formal sense. It's about entering into it, isn't it? It's about the hunger of the worshipper to know God. So if we think about the structures we have, do they enable us to worship God or restrict us from worshipping God? And Jesus blows this woman's heart apart because he's saying, it's going to be very different. So the Christians in the Acts 1 and 2 and 3 are happily going to the temple, but it won't be very long before they are actually moved away from Jerusalem and away from Israel and right across the known world. And they have to think of new ways 
to worship God. And they suddenly realize that worship is what you do all the time, not just in formal sessions. You see that? They've had their structure put in the barrel of water, wiggled around a lot, brought out and say, ah, this is what it looks like now. So anything that limits us to places and times is a restriction, isn't it? Now it can be very helpful, but it must restrict us. It must enable us to worship God. Here's a second, John 5, verse 39. He's talking to those who are disagreeing with him, and he says in verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The people of Jesus' day were treating Bible study as an end in itself, as a way of saying, I know more than you do. What can I tell you about the scriptures? As an end in itself, the more I know about it. But Jesus says the whole point about reading the Bible is to get to know me. And if your reading of the Bible doesn't get you to know me, then it's a lot of baloney, frankly, and I can say that. So he's opening it up. You see, if it's only about Bible study, then it leads to a critical assessment of the Scriptures. I think this about them. I think that about them. I stand in judgment on the Scriptures. But actually, as I read the Scriptures, they stand in judgment over me. And I submit myself to them. If I treat Bible study as an end in itself, I will pursue knowledge for its own sake and boast about how much I've got, which is what the Pharisees do. But Jesus says, it's not about how much knowledge you've got, it's about how well you know me. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And I neglect the impact on me. So Jesus says, all Bible study has to lead to me. So any way in which we do Bible study, any way in which we preach that is not helping people get to know Jesus, we better put in a barrel of water and wiggle around a lot to make sure that what we're doing is enabling people to get to know Jesus, not just to get to know facts about Jesus and facts about things. We need those, obviously. If you had never met me before, we'd start by saying, good morning, my name is, wouldn't we? And I'll give you facts about me. So that's an introductory thing. But you can imagine this husband and wife who, you know, good morning, my name is Charles, and yes, my name is Lynn, and, and staying at that level all the time, just knowing facts about each other, but not letting them know each other, would be a travesty of a relationship, wouldn't it? So we have to know the facts, but they must lead us to a deeper relationship with the one about whom the facts are true. We must lead us to know. In light of this world, then this is how we live. So we often bandy words around like grace and things. But it's not about knowing what grace stands for, but it's, am I living in the grace of God? So Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, Oh, I wish you could know the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of God. And to know this love which is past understanding. There's a conundrum, isn't it? He wants them to know what well, you can't know. Because he doesn't want them to measure it as if you could say it's this long and that high and that wide and all the rest of it. He says, I want you to dive in and wallow around in it. I want you to know the love of God in an experiential way rather than just say, ah, oh, well, this is a definition of love and I'll give you 16 sub-points on this one. 
not about that. It's actually about things you want it, isn't it? Number four. Here's the third one. Acts chapter 1. And uh, Jesus is telling his disciples what's about to happen. And he says this. He says, stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem and wait for the gift my father promised. And then they say, so when they met together, they asked him, this is his disciples, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus told them that they got things to do, they got to wait for the kingdom, for the promise of the, of the Father is going to give them, then they'd have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The focus is where? On us, isn't it? And Jesus says, no, it's not about you. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's not about you, it's about them, isn't it? So in worship, we mustn't be restricted by our structures that tie us into a place, is it? But see God's world as a place in which we can worship him according to how we are changed within. As we study God's word, we must see that as an opportunity for getting to know God. And anything less is inadequate. I must struggle with it, understanding it. But in the end, I'm trying to find out about who God is. And with my witness, we are not the focus of attention. It's not about us. It's about other people. So if we focus on ourselves, of course, then we preoccupy ourselves with ourselves and we neglect the world and its needs, which is what we do from time to time. But Jesus says we are to be witnesses to him in every place. So how do the structures of our life together help or hinder that reality? How does it help us to make sure other people are getting to know about Jesus? Or how does it hinder that? So it's always good from time to time, it seems, in church life to be to evaluate critically all that we do. Not so we can jettison it. Far from it. But we can say, this is good. Let's hold on to it and do it more. That's not so good. Let's refresh that to make sure it serves a purpose. Here's an example. I used to preach in a church a long way away from here, a long time ago. And occasionally I'd preach in the evening because they had evening services in those days. And there was always a bit in the services where we had the notices, as ever. And the lady used to come up, secretary, give up the notices. And she would say, and uh, at the end of the service, there will be um, coffee and tea and biscuits after the service. So please come through and have your coffee and biscuits as quickly as possible so we can tidy away and get home. She said that every single time. Or worse that effect. And you can see what's happened, can't you? At some point in the past, someone said, look, we come to the service and then go. Why don't we hang around with each other and talk and, you know, spend a bit of time together? What a good idea, someone said. That would be wonderful. So they did that. And someone said, well, we could have a drink while we're doing it, couldn't we? So someone does that. And for a while, they do this lovely thing about having a service together and they get afterwards and they chat together and probably pray together and spend a bit of time together and enjoy each other's company. But over the period of time, it's just become more and more brittle. So now all it is, we've got to do it, haven't we? So we better do it as quick as possible. Well, don't do it then. You know, give it up. But you see what's the point? No one said, why are we doing this? Is it worth doing? Well, actually, now we all need to get home, so let's do it at another time then. 
All they needed to do is waggle it around in the barrel of water for a while, didn't they? And say, how do we spend time with each other? Is this the best way or not? But they never did that. That's a, a silly example of what can easily happen in church now, where we do things and we can't remember why we do them. And it's worth look, asking the question. That's why it's always good to have new people say, why would you do that? And young people like that, that whole say, why do you do that? Because uh, uh, we've always done it. It's not a good enough answer, is it? It may be that it's very good. We do this because, oh, fine, that's lovely. Or it may be, this is what we're trying to accomplish, so it may be a good time to mention it. So some churches have their services engraved in stone over the arch, isn't it? Services at 11 a.m. and 6.30 in stone over the archway. Where betide you to try to change the times. But what else do you do at 11 o'clock in the morning and at 6.30 at night? What meeting do you go to at 6.30 at night on the evening? Apart from church. Well, isn't it? But Sunday somehow is that funny time. There's nothing wrong with those times. Absolutely none at all. But if we had our evening service at 6.30 at Ashburnham Place, we wouldn't be able to do it because we've got guests to serve. So ours is at half past seven or eight o'clock because that's when the work's finished, when the guests have gone and we can do our thing. So the time, you think, well, are they practical times in life of the people we are? You get the point. Jesus is talking about something much more important than just the, you know, the really niceties of church life. But I think we can still make the point. Jesus says you can put new wine into new wineskins. And we've got to make sure that what we're doing, we don't frustrate by the structures that we have created. But if from time to time we need to do other things, we need to do other things. Church, not a long way from here, was running an alpha course for non-church people. I'm lost in the time, sorry, it's 20 to 5 at the moment, actually. It's 20 to 5, so we're in for a long haul here. Oh, quarter, sorry, quarter past the okay. And, um, and this, the guy was, re- was reaching out, I think, to, to women, uh, mums and toddlers and that sort of stuff, and realised that they actually wouldn't fit into the services they already ran at the church. So he thought, well, actually, they did another one. So they have an afternoon one, I think, at 4 o'clock. Because it fits the people that are talking. I think that's lateral thinking, don't you? It's just a practical way of thinking, will the structure we have already serve the purpose? That it, well, it won't quite. So let's just make it a bit more flexible. It just needs thinking, doesn't it? So you've had your covenant service today, but it's always good, I think, from time to time, for someone to say, and why do we do that? Let's just check that out to make sure we're doing the right thing in the right way. It serves a purpose. Then you would say, yep, it's absolutely right. It serves a purpose. Let's go for it. Other times you would say, let's put that to one side. They were just three examples about worshipping, about reading the word of God, about the way we witness that we might have us to Father, we know some of the things that you are doing at the moment. We know that you are God of just new things. You introduce us to more new things. And I just want to ask, Lord, that this fellowship of your people, as they eagerly follow you out of love and devotion, will at all times be able to embrace the things you're doing. And the structures here at this church will be flexible enough to embrace the things that you're doing and want to do through them into this village and beyond. 
Thank you for their flexibility. Thank you for their eagerness, Lord, to live for your glory. And I ask, Lord, that here you will find it easy to do the things you want to do through your Spirit in your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.